If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 12 this morning. Romans chapter 12. This morning we return to our overview series of the book of Romans as we're going one chapter at a time each week. And we've come to chapter 12. And if you've been with us for any of the other sermons, you'll know that not only in terms of what I preach, but even in terms of what Paul writes, uh, he has been laying um, this broad beautiful picture of theology, but he's also taken time to give little asides of application, uh, little moments to say, now listen, here's what you do with this theology. And so while there isn't a, a neat division here between uh, doctrine and application, nevertheless, what we see at chapter 12 is a big shift in terms of the tone and the style and the content of the letter. Paul has largely, in chapters 1 through 11, given us a gospel doctrine. And now in chapters 12 through 15, he is going to explain and exhort us as Christians, those who have put our faith in gospel doctrine, to a pattern of gospel living. He's going to show us the kind of devotion that should mark God's people. That's the title and the central idea of this sermon, but I want to begin by being clear on what I mean by the word devotion. Obviously, it has uh, the meaning of being committed to something. Uh, hopefully, we are devoted to our spouses if we are married. We're devoted to our children if we have them. But it can also mean more than just being committed to something. Uh, we often use the word devotion to describe an expression of uh, piety or religious commitment. That's why we can talk about doing devotions in the morning or in the evening before we go to bed, spending time with God. So to speak of the Christian's devotion is to speak of how they live out their faith in God. This isn't, or rather this is exactly what this chapter is all about. In fact, Paul will deal with specific topics in chapters 13 and 14 and 15, but here in chapter 12, he lays out the basics, the essentials of Christian devotion, what it means to live out the Christian life. But here's the rub. As we look at what that means, as we look at what Paul says, this is going to hurt this morning because the Christian life is the most radical life imaginable. And we often fail to live that radical life. And so this morning, it's going to cut deep sometimes when we hear verses and exhortations that we frankly just fail to keep. But rather than be despairing, we need to remember that we do not live the Christian life in order to obtain salvation, but rather we live the Christian life because we have already obtained salvation. In other words, Paul is not giving command, command, command in the hopes that somehow we will be good enough to be acceptable to God. No, as we've already seen over the past 11 chapters, God has gone to amazing lengths to make us His people acceptable to Him. Now, therefore, in response, this is how we ought to live. And so, in fact, what Paul will show us is that all of our life as God's people is based on this foundation, God's mercy toward us. Not just mercy in terms of bringing us to Christ, but His ongoing mercy so that even when we hear and think, I failed, I failed, I failed this morning, there is repentance, there is forgiveness, there is reconciliation and the restoration of fellowship with God that is waiting for us when we seek after Him. Let's follow along as I begin reading Romans chapter 12. 
verse 1. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, living, holy, and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith, in service, in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. May God bless the reading of his word. As we think through this chapter and how it speaks to the basics of the Christian life, we begin by understanding Paul saying to us, devote yourself to God. Devote yourself to God. Again, what is the basis for this life of devotion to God? It's His mercy. He says at the outset, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. The therefore signals not just 9, 10, and 11, but all of what has come before. Think about that. Think about this this kind of massive uh, mountain of theology that Paul's been building up. And he says, now on top of all of this, here's our response. By the mercies of God, go and live the Christian life. And once again, if we skip over that, if we think somehow that, that obedience brings mercy rather than mercy leading to obedience, then we will have flipped the Christian life and we'll do one of two things. Either we will be miserable as God's people or we will have failed to comprehend the gospel and not be saved at all. Salvation does not come by the working of our hand, but by the mercy of a sovereign God who calls us by His grace to faith in Christ. All that we do, all that we have, all of our salvation is rooted in Him. So when He lived on this earth, He lived for His people. He was living a righteous life on their behalf to make them acceptable before God. When He died on the cross, it was not for His sin or the shame of His perfect life. There was nothing to be ashamed of. 
but rather it was for us, the punishment that we deserve. He died on our place that we might have forgiveness with God. When we believe that, when we put all of our hope, all of our confidence in the future and our acceptance with God on Him and what He did for us, then God saves us. And as Paul said, He makes us a part of His people, adopting us as His children. And so we must build our life from the outset, our life of devotion before God on His own mercy towards us. Based on that mercy, what does Paul say we should do? We should offer up our lives as a sacrifice. Now, you may have noticed that when I read verses, uh, really just verse 1, it looked a little bit different, and that's because although 99% of the time I'm very happy with the ESV, they, they, they um, kind of fell into just what was a common way of translating this verse that's not actually all that um, great. I think it's a little misleading. It's not somehow that we are a living sacrifice that is wholly acceptable to God. We are to offer ourselves as a sacrifice that Paul describes is in three ways, living, holy, and acceptable, which is why I read it that way. Paul says that we are to offer ourselves sacrificially. Now, first of all, just think about the culture in which he's writing. He's writing to Jews and to Greeks. What have they done their whole life and their religions? They've offered sacrifices. The Jews have offered the sacrifices according to the laws of Leviticus to show their faith in God to receive atonement. But what did Paul say? That atonement was not final. It was pointing forward to Jesus and the true and lasting atonement that would come. Think about the Greeks who've offered all kinds of sacrifices of pagan deities trying to satisfy their wrath, trying to open up their stingy hands to pour out blessings. And what has he said? That's not what we're about anymore. You don't, you don't go grab something and give it. Now, we, as in the terms of some of you kids will enjoy hokey pokey, we put our whole selves in. This is it. Everything about our life is meant to be offered as a sacrifice to God, something that is living. That means it's ongoing. But more than that, it's holy and acceptable. We're not, we're not, when it comes to giving our life before God, we're not giving Him leftovers. We're not saying, I'm going to do this, this, and this and be happy. And now, God, whatever time I have left over, whatever years I have left in life, whatever comes out of the rest of my bank account, that's for you. That's not what God says. Completely, sacrificially, we offer our bodies, meaning our whole lives, over to God. People say, I gave my heart to Jesus. I'm glad, but he wants more than that. He wants everything. He wants everything. We don't just give him the leftovers. We don't give him something that he doesn't want. God says, this is what the Christian life looks like. And we don't say, well, that's nice, God, but I'd rather live it this way. No, no. We offer what is holy and acceptable to him. In other words, we live our life the way that he says. We bow the knee before God and we say, here it is. Everything, my life at your command. That's huge. Don't just be like, hey, I got it, I got it. No, no. That is, that, that turns everything you've ever been taught by American culture on its head. You're not just here for yourself. You're not just here for the American dream. You're not just here to make the most of anything and everything in this life. No, you are here for God. And, and, and notice how Paul frames this. As huge as that is, he says, this is just the most reasonable thing imaginable. Well, once again, I have no idea why, and I think it's because the NIV did it first. I have no idea why they have spiritual here. 
The, the, the word is the word we get from rational or reasonable in terms of worship. I think they're, they're trying to make it a distinct from being a worship service maybe. But the point is, Paul says, this is your reasonable, your rational service of worship. You say, this seems massive. It is. But Paul says, what other response is worth what God has done for you in Christ? This is the most rational, reasonable thing you can do in response to him. And just to make the point, it's not about this service. Sometimes we talk about going to, to worship, and that's okay as long as we understand it is gathered worship. It is corporate worship. It's not just worship in total. Every moment of your waking life when you are able to decide where to go and what to do and how to think and what kind of attitude to have, it is meant to be an act of worship before God. Part of this means being or part of what this means in terms of being wholly devoted to him is seen in verse 2. He says that we are to be transformed into a new person. Do not be conformed to this world. Do not be shaped by its, by its forces. Do not be conformed to its mindset. Do, do not take what they say is right and say, okay, that is right. Do not take what they say is wrong and say, okay, that is wrong. No, no. Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. There was a man by the name of St. Jerome who lived about 400 AD, and more than anything, he wanted what these verses said. He wanted holiness before God. He wanted to conquer his sins. And so he thought the best way to do this was to leave the moral cesspool of the city and move out to the desert regions in Syria. He was essentially going to be a hermit, or in modern-day terms, a monk. He was going to give himself fully and committedly to God in that way. But it didn't go as planned. Jerome writes, How often when I was living in the desert in that lonely waste scorched by the burning sun, how often did I fancy myself among the pleasures of Rome? Through my fear of hell, I had consigned myself to that prison where my only companions were scorpions and wild beasts. I often imagined myself surrounded by dancing girls. My face was pale with fasting. My limbs were cold as ice, but my mind was burning with desire and the fires of my lust kept bubbling up before me while my body was good as dead. <clears throat> Helpless, I cast myself at the feet of Jesus. Well, why am I telling that story? My, my, the point of my story is this. It's not just the physicality of what we do with our bodies that matters. The sin that is carried out with our mouth, with even looks of annoyance or eye rolling or hands and feet that go places to do things they shouldn't go, it starts somewhere more deeper. It starts in the heart, the affections. It starts with how we think about life. And this is why Paul says, this is why Paul says that the way we have a transformed life is not just by changing our habits, but by renewing our mind. John Piper is right when he says the Christian alternative to immoral behaviors is not a new list of moral behaviors. It is the transformation that only comes by God's Spirit cleansing us from the inside, purging out the sinful desires, creating new affections and new ways of thinking after the image of God's own Son. It starts with the mind because right thinking leads to right desires, which leads to right living. And so we we're reminded of Psalm 119 where the psalmist says, through your precepts, through your word, your instruction, God, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. 
Some of us love false ways. Some of us love sin. We don't tell people about it. It's, it's our own private thing. But there are some sins that we, do, we indulge in, we delight in, we even make excuses for. How does that change? We get instruction from God by His Word. And what we believe is desirable, and, and we, we seek out, God slowly begins to, to change our mindset about it until it becomes something evil that we reject. And we begin to hate every false way, loving God more than the sin. So if you ever wonder why we always harp on Bible intake, if why in our community groups we're reading about Bible intake, and it's about read the Bible, listen to the Bible, come get instruction from the Bible, hear sermons preached about the Bible, it's because that's how God changes us. We can go out and we can enjoy the wonders of God's beauty and creation, but that's not going to cause you to stop looking at pornography on your television. That's not going to cause someone to stop speaking maliciously to their spouse. God's word is going to do that, wielded by God's spirit. That's what Paul says. Now, we've spent quite a bit of time on these two verses because these two verses set the tone for everything in the next three chapters. These two verses are the foundation of everything that Paul is going to say in this chapter, in chapter 13 and chapter 15. He says, this is what we do. And this is what it looks like played out in our lives. So my advice, take this week and memorize Romans 12, 1 and 2. If it takes you more than a week, then take a second week, take a third week. Get this verse in your head and allow it to begin to be used by God to bring you back to his word, back to his word, back to his word. Not because we worship the book, but because we worship the God who wrote the book. We want his desire, his presence in our life. If we are seeking to live out chapters 1 and 2, if we are devoting ourselves fully to God, then secondly, this is what it will look like. You will devote yourself to community. You will devote yourself to community. We see this in verses 3 through 8. Paul says, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. In light of the grace shown to us by God, how should we think about ourselves? Think with sober judgment, he says. What is he talking about here? He says, just stop and don't get run away with your own thoughts about yourself. I mean, we are, we are prone to think about, look at all I've done for God. Look at all the money I've put in that offering plate. Look at all the special offerings I've done. Look at all the, the groceries that I've, that I've given for homeless people. Look at all the mission trips I've taken. Look at all the Bible study lessons that I've taught. Look at all the times I've cleaned the church. Man, I am something else, aren't I? Isn't God happy to have me? It's all about me. Look at me. Look at me. And Paul says, whoa, whoa, whoa just stop. Think soberly about yourself. And what comes before that? Paul saying, as an apostle, the grace given to me is how I call you to this. In other words, Paul even acknowledges he has no authority apart from the apostleship that's been granted to him by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Likewise, he'll tell the Corinthians, what do you have that you haven't received from God? So before we go off on this train of thought that thinks, man, I am something special. This church can't run without me. This, the, 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 the God can't get his business done without me. Look at all that I've done. Paul says, whoa, whoa, back up. Let, let's think a little bit more soberly about us. 
Everything that we have, everything that we are is come from the gracious hand of God. And what that ought to do is cause us to not think more highly of ourselves than we ought. To be humble, to make much of God in the community of faith that he's put us in. He signals that this is a community thing because he says, I'm addressing everyone among you, he writes to the Romans. Not just some of you that might have a problem. Everyone might, everyone needs to do that. Everyone needs to think about this. Why? Because we are all part of one body. We have faith individually, but that never, we are never left to live out that faith as individuals. We are one body, though there, is, there are many members, there are many parts of the body. And even though we don't have the same function, we cannot forget about each other. We cannot forget about the fact that God has put us, He's united us with one another in Christ. Verse 5, we though many are one body in Christ and individually members of it. Now in just a minute, He's going to talk about our diversity, but here He nails our unity. We are one in Christ. But more than that, listen to what he says. We're the body of Christ. We belong to one another. Now, if something belongs to me, what does that mean? I'm responsible for it, right? My house belongs to me. Sadly, right now, as we're trying to get rid of it, I'm responsible for it. I got to paint it. I got to clean it. I'm thankful for people that have helped, right? My kids belong to me. God has entrusted them to me. So I'm responsible for them, right? I have to take care of them. I have to love them. I have to be involved in them. And what does Paul say? He looks at the Roman Christians. By the power of God's Spirit, he looks at Crossway Christian Church and he says, you are members one of another. You belong to each other. This is what God has called us to. We don't just show up on a Sunday and sit here and smile and nod and sing some songs and then go our separate ways. We belong to each other. We are part of God's people, part of the community that has been founded upon the shedding of Christ's own blood. And I just have to say, probably this passage gets at what is the biggest open womb, pus-pouring sin on the face of the American church. We love our individualism. We live and die by what is best for me, what is most convenient for me, what, what are the preferences that I have in my life. And Paul says, that's not the Christian life. The, 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 the Christian life has an eye on two things, my walk with God and my relationship with his people. The, the, the eye never comes into it. It's quiet for a reason, isn't it? I think, I think if, if we said, let's start confessing sins, this would be one that all of us, we were honest, should have to raise our hand and say, I need to confess that sin. The decisions we make, how we spend our money, how we spend our time, even the kind of sometimes the jobs we take, the houses we live, everything else is driven by this question, what is best for me? One of the most revolutionary things I ever heard, I think, and that's saying something, one of the most revolutionary things I ever heard was a guy tell a college student, before you decide where to go to school, look and see what good churches are around the schools. You can get a degree from anywhere, but how are you going to live four years without a good local body to be involved with them and you and you and them? I never heard anything like that before. It was always, go who's going to give you the best money. Go who's going to have the best uh, scores and the best job rate and blah, 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 blah. And he said, no, 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 that's not the priority for the Christian life. We are called to have a priority for the community. We belong one to another. 
And what should that lead us to do? To serve one another. He says, we have each been given gifts according to the grace that is given to us. Therefore, let us use them for the sake of the church. Verse 6, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Now, number one, this is not an exhaustive list of gifts that are listed uh, in the Bible, nor is it meaning that every believer only has one gift. There are a multiplicity of things, of ministries, that God calls every single believer to do. Nevertheless, what has God uniquely gifted you to do? Maybe it's on this list, maybe it's not. Maybe it's something else. The question is this, are you using it to serve God's people? Do you use it to make money, Monday through Friday or Saturday, and never bring it in? to the community of faith, to help a brother out, to serve one another? That's not good. God's given you that gift. Why is he giving you that gift? To love and to serve his people. We've got to be careful that we don't think too highly of ourselves, decided that we have better things to do than sacrifice for our brothers and sisters, those who have been united to us through Christ. Instead, we must be devoted to the community of God's people. And yet that devotion can never be mere service. It can never just be mere helping out. It can't just be like punching a clock. Well, I spent five hours helping out people at church this week. That's more than other people, so I'm doing good. No, no. What what does Paul say? We devote ourselves to God, and that leads to a devoting to the community, but we also, in that, devote ourselves to love. That's the third thing we see in verses 9 through 16. We must devote ourselves as God's people to love, to love. I'm sure many of you, if not all of you, if you're old enough, have seen advertisements for uh, a theater or a theater company, someone who put it on plays, and you've seen those two masks side by side. One's got the happy face and one's got the sad face, right? You know what I'm talking about? Sometimes they're just very simple, sometimes they're very elaborate, right? That, That goes all the way back to the days of ancient Greece when actors literally held up masks on sticks in front of their face. Uh, to convey what their character, the part they're portraying, is supposed to be feeling. This was obviously before method acting, where you're taught to really get angry about something, and, and so the anger on you put out on film, that's real anger. That seems bad, like a bad plan, right? Uh, the, 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 so the, the point is, the actor is playing a part. They're not really angry about anything. They're not really sad about anything. They're not really, they're not really happy about anything. That's just the part that they're playing, so they wear the false face. Now, The Greek word for an actor, the Greek word for one who held up the mask is the same word from which we get the English hypocrite. When it comes to the way we love as God's people, we have to make sure that doesn't describe us. We have a smiling face and people say hi and tell us how they're doing. We may even have a laugh with them and say goodbye at services and then we're done. And we don't think about them at all before Sunday. If we say we love them and that's the extent of our walk with the community of God's people, then we are hypocrites. That's not love. That's not Christian love. Love that is not deeply affectionate and translated into practical manifestations is not true Christian love. We could talk about being loving, but that's not what Jesus said. What did he say? He said, you are to love one another just as I have loved you. That is a high level of love and commitment, isn't it? And that's why Paul says, let love be genuine. 
in verse 9. Love must be authentic. It's, if you, you want to have a picture of it, think about Jesus in the garden. Judas comes up what? With an affectionate greeting, a kiss. And yet, what is the purpose of that kiss? To betray Jesus. And Paul says, don't love like that. Don't give hugs and handshakes and smiles on Sunday when you have absolutely no interest in the lives of those around you. He says, that's not Christian love. Let love be genuine. At the same time, though, notice that in the depth of that affection, love isn't blind. Part of loving, according to God, means that we abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Now, Once again, that's the opposite of what our culture says. If you love me, you won't judge me. Really? So if I see you puffing away a pack a day of cancer sticks, I shouldn't try and say something to you? If I'm a doctor and, and I can tell by, by the cough, by what's coming up, there's a chance you've got a tumor in there and you need some serious chemo, but that person hates doctors, I shouldn't just say, oh, well, they're on their own. If I see somebody, something wrong with someone, should I not go and lovingly tell that to them? That's what, that's what Paul is saying here. Love is not naively sentimental. It's not just, oh, we'll just all get along and it doesn't matter and we won't talk about our differences. No, that's not Christian love either. Real love doesn't reduce everything to its most common denominator. It doesn't ignore what's right or wrong, good and bad, and just accepts everyone and everything. That's worldliness. That's spinelessness. In biblical terms, that's the fear of man. But genuine love flows from our experience of God's love. Therefore, it reflects His character. And what does God do? He abhors evil and He remains constant in His goodness towards us. Sometimes the most loving thing you can do for someone, even God's people, is to look at them and say, you're wrong. Sometimes we have to say, I know you're wrong because I was wrong. I've been exactly where you're at. I've struggled with the same sin, and it's ugly. Let me pray with you. Let me read God's word with you. Let me, let me help you get out of the position that you're in. And those that hear that, should be confident that such a statement isn't driven by pettiness or unlovingness, but rather, as Paul says, by brotherly affection. That's how Paul describes love in verse 10. It speaks to loyalty and fidelity. Why? Because it's the language of family. And that's the language of church. Under normal circumstances, we have deep and loving commitments that exist among family members. Even when they drive us nuts... And they're stupid. You may call off work and drive hours through the night to be at their bedside when they're in the hospital. Because they're family. And we love them. And Paul says that's how it should be in the church, only more so. Think about the example of David and Jonathan. I mean, I mean they define brotherly affection. Jonathan was more loyal to David than his own father. Why? Because he knew that David was God's anointed. He was the one in the right, and his father was the one in the wrong. Where does that kind of affection come from? Where does that kind of love come from? Go back to verses 1 and 2. It comes from God. John says that we are able to love because God first loved us. When we remember God's loving mercy towards us the gospel of Christ, when He found us as undesirable wretches, worthy of hell, and yet set His affection upon us. 
that you're about to be reading the prophets if you're tracking with us on our reading program. And you're going to come to a passage in Ezekiel where God talks to Israel and he says, you were like a child who had just been born and was abandoned by the side of the road. No, nobody cared for you. They left you to die. And what did I do? I came and I picked you up and I loved you and I cleaned you off and I, I brought you close to me and I made you my own. That's what he's done for all, all of us who put our faith in Christ. We, we were worthless, destined for hell in our sin, and God showed mercy to us. He showed love to us. And if we go back to verses 1 and 2, remember what God has done for us? We, were, we soak in that mercy of his love. Guess what? We will become loving people. It's inevitable. It's inevitable. So you don't have to think, man, how do I, how do I struggle and bend? And how do I make myself? No, no, no. Allow God to transform your mind. Allow God to transform your heart and renew it, not after the image of the world, but of his son, and you will become a loving person. Move in that direction, and with God's help, he will push you along and allow that process to come to completion. What does that genuine, affectionate, authentic love look like? He says, verse 10, outdo one another in showing honor. Don't be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. And verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. We talk about verse 15 a lot, don't we? Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. I don't know about you, but the second part of that is easy. I see someone in pain God has wired me to feel that pain. But the first part is hard. I remember being in college and sitting uh, Christian college, and I can remember we used to start most of our classes with uh, a, a few minutes of prayer. Um, and uh, I remember one girl, I think it was a girl, who shared that she had got this anonymous donation that had paid for half her school year. And I remember my parents working two jobs so that I didn't have to work two or three jobs even though I was still working a job at school. And all the difficulty and the scraping by and the sacrifice we were making. And here I am, a Bible student. I'm thinking, God, where's my, where's my anonymous gift? It was hard to rejoice with those who rejoice. But if you have been transformed by God's love so that you genuinely, affectionately love others, then this is what we do. This is what it looks like. This is how we should live. We could spend an entire sermon, in fact, many people do, unpacking these commands, working through these things. But just get the big picture. The kind of love on display here is both God-centered and others-focused. Once again, the mindset is not, what's the best for me? How, what can I get out of this? It says, by faith in Christ, I want to live for Christ for the benefit of the people of Christ. So how do you stay zealous and fervent in that kind of life? By fixing your eyes on the promise of the gospel. Then we are able to rejoice in the hope of future glory. We're able to be patient even in tribulation. And we're always close to God because we are constant in prayer. That's what produces the kind of practical, sacrificial love that Paul calls us to. Don't worry about the future, what might happen to you. D don't worry if it's not entirely safe or you might have not quite enough money in your bank account contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. One Christian musician said that he and his wife drove cross-country for seven days after their honeymoon and they never needed a hotel because of the hospitality of Christians. When's the last time you gave it your bed for someone who wasn't family or a close friend? Now that may seem like, oh man, I don't know why would you do that, but think even greater in the first century. Hotels, public hotels, were little more than brothels. 
Christians did not want to be there. So they would travel. What would they do? They would find a church. They would find other Christians. They would say, hey, I'm a Christian from Corinth. And I'm here for business for a few days. Can I stay with you? We're traveling to see family. Can I stay with you? And guess what? The Christians would do it. They were known for their hospitality, for giving their fellow brothers and sisters a safe place to stay. And I love what the the, the German um, commentator Adolf Schlatter points out about these realities. He says, Paul blows up the idea that such things are a burden for God's people or that such fellowship can exist only after long periods of intimate relationship. In other words, he says, don't don't fall into the trap, number one, that Ben Franklin was right, and that guest and fish both stink after three days. Oh, the people are in my house too long. It's such a burden. He says, that's not Christian love. Nor get 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 it in your head that somehow I've got to know this person for years and years and years, and then I will sacrifice for them. He says, that's not what was taking place in the first century when Paul wrote these words, so we shouldn't think about it either. Christian love isn't shown only to those that we know well. It is shown to all who has had their sins paid for by the blood of Christ. Even more radical, though, than this Christian love for insiders is Christian love for outsiders, even those that would call themselves our enemy. And in these final verses, Paul says, as God's people, saved by God's mercy, resisting conformity to the world, devote yourself to peace. Devote yourself to peace. Earlier, we skipped over verse 14, and we did so because we just want to be realistic about the Scriptures. Listen, we believe, as our statement of faith affirms, as we teach in the members class and everywhere else, that every single jot and tittle of God's Word is His Word. It is is inspired. It is for us. That's how Jesus taught the Old Testament. That's what Paul says about the New, and we believe it. But remember, it's still written by human people. And I think as Paul's, as Paul's either dictating uh, and someone else is writing down or as he himself is writing, he kind of got ahead of himself. And he knows what he's going to talk about next. And so he blurts out, bless those who persecute you and do not curse in verse 14. But then what does he do? He goes back and talks more about loving God's people. So what do we do? Well, we just, let's just bring verse 14 to the rest of verses 17 to 21 where he's talking about and unpacking this idea. What does it mean to bless those who persecute you? To bless them and not to curse them. This is this countercultural instruction that, in our ears anyway, doesn't seem to be right, comes from Jesus himself, right? The Sermon on the Mount, he said, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's where Paul's getting this, and that's why he's going to unpack it the way that he does. Think about this, though. A little while ago, one seminary student at Westminster Theological Seminary in California uh, was originally from Turkey, and he was talking to actually the president of the seminary there, Robert Godfrey, and he was telling them about something that had taken place in his home country. A missionary was serving there in Turkey, which just so you know, typically has been fairly tolerant of Christian missions. When you, when you think about uh, a lot of the New Testament churches mentioned in, um, uh, in Revelation, Uh, they're all right there in that area that is modern-day Turkey. So they have a Christian heritage. But this missionary was there. He would do public evangelism. And one day, just out of the crowd, someone came and slit his throat. And the crowd scattered. He was left for dead right in the middle of the streets. A public execution of someone for one thing only, witnessing for Christ. 
Well, of course, Turkish television picked this up. It was all over the news. It was in newspapers. And they tracked down this guy's widow in the days just after this killing. And they said to her, what would you like to say to the nation in light of what has happened? She told the reporter, this is what I would like to say. In the name of Christ, I forgive my husband's killer. The student went on to explain that one sentence did more to communicate the essential nature of Christianity to modern Turkish culture than most of the other ministries that had been going for years. Why? Because Turkey is a revenge culture. Turkish culture is a revenge culture, he said. An eye for an eye, a tooth for tooth is just getting started for how they think about crimes. Everyone expected some promise of retribution. You know, they expected... What I would have said years ago, the dirty, hairy moment. Now it's the Liam Neeson moment. You know, I don't know who you are, but I'm coming for you. That's what they were expecting her to say. And instead she said, no, I forgive them. No revenge, no retribution. And it just blew the country apart. They didn't know what to make of this woman other than this is how Christians live. They do not take revenge. Paul says, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Because we know that one day God will bring justice to this world and bring a full recompense for all people and all wrongs. We don't have to be a vengeful people today. We are freed from anger and bitterness and hatred, even murderous thoughts. So don't get frustrated by how people treat you to the point that you get dragged down into the mud of their own sin with them. Don't join them in the way of evil. Paul says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In Christ, we have a future hope in Him. We are freed to now go beyond that even and love our enemies. Not just hold your tongue. Not just walk away. We are freed and empowered to love them, to bless them and not curse them. So when you have that neighbor that acts like a jerk or a boss at work that seems to hate your guts, heap burning coals on his head by going out of your way to show him kindness. That's what Paul is saying infuriate him with your ability to live honorably in light of his abuse. In his book on basic Christian theology, John Calvin gets to the end of three major sections and he summarizes the Christian life by meditating on Romans 12, 1 and 2. Here's what he says. We are consecrated and dedicated to God in order that we may hereafter think, speak, meditate and do nothing except for his glory. We are not our own. Therefore, let not our reason nor our will sway our plans and deeds. We are not our own. Let us therefore not set it as our goal to seek what is expedient for us according to the flesh. We are not our own. And so far as we can, let us therefore forget ourselves and all that is ours. Conversely, we belong to God. Let us therefore, let us live for Him and die for Him. We belong to God. Let His wisdom and will therefore rule our actions. We belong to God. Let all the parts of our lives accordingly strive toward Him as our only lawful goal. Now, when I hear those words, 
I think they're good words. I think they're powerful words that well summarize what Paul's been saying, but they are more powerful because I know what comes after those words. Paul wrote, or rather Calvin wrote those words when he was a young man. He was fleeing persecution in France from the Catholic Church during the Reformation, and he ends up in Geneva, Switzerland. And he's persuaded to stay there and pass the Reformed Church. And he does that for a few years, but here's the problem. Calvin actually preached the Bible. And he told not just the common laborer, but also the city officials, you've got to give up your lechery, you've got to give up your debauched life. If you're going to be called Christians, this is how you live the walk of holiness. And guess what they said? We don't want to hear that. Get out. They literally banish him from the town. Not a great way to end your first pastorate, I have to say. So Calvin travels on, he lands in Strasbourg, and his experience there couldn't be more different. People love him. They respond to the preaching of God's word. They are his intimate fellowship and a growing church. Life is good for Calvin in Strasbourg. And then after just two years, a letter arrives. It's from Geneva, and they're begging him to come back. They said, we, do, we didn't understand that what you were preaching is what we needed. The work of the Reformation is dying. We need gospel preaching. We need your clear teaching, your pastoral care. Well, that's the last thing Calvin wanted to do. He did not want to go back to Geneva. But he wrote to a friend, and this is what he says. And if you can, remember the words of the quote that we just had from his book. Listen and remember as he writes to his friend. When I received that letter, he said... I would rather have died than go back to Geneva. But I am not my own. I belong to God and therefore that is where I'm going. The beauty of that is Calvin's ministry in Geneva exploded, transformed that city and, and cities on out into the continent of Europe, down into France, that dude sent, trained and sent out more than 1,000 pastors, 75% of which were slaughtered in France just for being Protestants and preaching that the gospel of Christ is salvation by grace alone through faith alone. It was an amazing ministry. All because he realized all of him was to be offered up as a sacrifice to God. Do you understand that that is what we live? That's how we are meant to live as Christians. We present ourselves as living, holy, and acceptable sacrifices to Him. That every moment of our lives is meant to be devoted to Him and seen by our commitment to love, to His community, and to peaceful, ongoing acts of worship. In light of God's mercies towards us in Christ, how can we offer anything less? You say, but the calling is so high. How do you do it? You can't by yourself. That's why we continually rest in God's mercies, knowing that He will perform the life-transforming work and give us the power that we need to live that way. Father, we're so thankful for Your Word. We're thankful, God, that it does challenge us, that it doesn't leave us where we're at, that it helps us to see, God, beyond just the culture that we've grown up in and swam in, the friends that we've known, that, Father, there is something bigger and better and different in how You want us to live. God, we're thankful that when... We're struck. God, we're struck hard sometimes, even to the point of tears, knowing how terribly we fail at living out the Christian life, that there is still more mercy to be found in Christ. That, Father, you continually invite us to come back to you, that resist our sinful desires, to resist the devil, and to draw close to you, knowing that you will draw near to us. 
So, Father, we pray for that this morning, that we would not only remember your past mercy in bringing us to Christ and what you accomplished for us through his life, death, and resurrection, but that, Father, there is still more mercy to be found, mercy for this day, that we might be transformed into the image of your Son and be able to live a life of sacrificial worship before you. Father, only you can do this in our life, and we ask you to do that work now. By the power of your word is applied by our spirit. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.